I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. Cooper Knowlton. And this is Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Tyler Reynolds. Tyler is the vice president for EOS Investors, uh, which is a private equity fund involved in the acquisition of properties in the hospitality business. Is that right? Exactly right. Okay. And I, you wear a second hat too, right? Tell us about the second hat that you wear because I'm not going to do it justice. Uh, sure. Uh, so I work with uh, in a family business that's a real estate development company based in Florida called uh, Singh Investors. Um, my father, whose name is Pritam Singh, their names are just different. We can get into that. Uh, started it in the mid '80s and has developed about 2,000 homes and hotel rooms in the Florida Keys since then. So I work now with my brother and my dad. So we asked Tyler what he wanted to drink today, and Tyler, being very difficult to ask for an Aperol Spritz, <laughs> <laughs> we did not get Tyler the materials for an Aperol Spritz. That's true. Why did you ask for an Aperol Spritz? What was the reason behind that drink of choice? Well, I think an Aperol Spritz, uh, more than any other drink, um, brings to mind a a kind of romantic relaxation that I like to uh, experience with my drinking. So I just picture being in Venice, sitting out on the piazza like in the square, getting a drink, relaxing. It's the drink of the local people there. They're like two dollars or two euros i guess yeah and uh and that's why nothing more than that i was in italy earlier this summer with my family and my mom since coming back from italy will like only drink aperol spritzes yeah she thinks she's very very sophisticated (laughs) so when we have your mom in the podcast we will actually have aperol spritzes i take that not personally instead we're (laughs) drinking leftover old fashions (laughs) how's your leftover old fashioned well the glass is broken but otherwise it tastes great (laughs) oh okay Good job, Lo. <laughs> so, Tyler, why don't you bring us back to the beginning and tell us where you grew up, a little bit about your childhood. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in uh, western Massachusetts. Uh, it's the five-college area, so like Northampton, Amherst. Sure. I went to Amherst College. Uh, there you go. Yeah. My uh, my best buddy growing up, Tristan Zients' dad, was a professor okay. in physics, Arthur okay. Zients. Never took a physics class. Yeah, well, so. there you go. Optical <laughs> physics. And... Um, So my mom went to Smith, stayed because she loved living there. Uh, So other colleges, Mount Holyoke, Hampshire, UMass, so big college area. Uh, Must be a nice place to grow up. It was really nice. Um, Like all my best friends are still from there. They don't live there, actually. Everybody's in Boston or San Francisco or something. Um, And so I went to like – I went to private schools. Uh, my mom was a social worker. She uh, also ran a Montessori school for many years, um, though I only went to it when I was very little. Um, so I went to Waldorf school, then like a all-boys prep school that was a, just the Lord of the Flies nightmare that you'd expect. <laughs> it was a kind of idyllic liberal, you know, childhood. You know, lots of, lots of uh, people making... Thirty-five dollars to $85,000 a year, you know, like having a nice time wearing uh, Birkenstocks. Liberal, get off this podcast. <laughs> no liberals allowed. Yeah. And where'd you end up going to college? So I went to Reed College uh, in Portland, Oregon, sure. uh, which was, uh, which I loved. It was a terrific experience both living in Portland and, um, and going to Reed. It was, um, <clears throat> the professors are incredible. The West Coast. I don't know if anybody else has lived in the West Coast. Highly recommended. Uh, I don't know why I came back. We'll get into that. But uh, it was a it was a really great experience. What did you study? So I was a history major. 
uh, because I always was interested in public service, uh, and it seemed like the most logical uh, way into public service. Um, so I did a lot of political theory, particularly, uh, certainly the most memorable part of my college education is taking, you know, classical political theory, modern political theory um, with Darius Rajali, who was my advisor, Peter Steinberger, um, who's like a Hegelian scholar. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would say about that experience that it, it really, a grounding in political theory, I think, really helps you think the way lawyers think. Because, I mean, those were, of course, lawyers of their time, but there's a, there's a clarity of thought that those scholars have. Um, uh, and both, you know, running, running all the way back to Plato and Aristotle up through the present. And when I sort of think back to those touchstone points, those moments in those courses, uh, it, they still sort of help me think clearly about actually about law and legal practice. So, were you thinking about going to law school when you were in college? I was, but Reed is a uh, Reed is a strongly has a strong like anti-professional culture. Mm -hmm. So it's like fifty plus percent go on to academia. So there's no pre-law track. How many of your friends from Reed are now working in private equity with you? Uh, sadly, so many of them. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or or banking. Banking or, or private equity. Yeah. Um, the, my best man. Uh, the guy. Or they're, actually, in, or they're in Colorado somewhere doing something out there, right? Doing something. Yeah. Uh, no, like the. <laughs> we could talk about it. The guy who officiated my wedding is in pro. Is at Credit Suisse for ten years. So you know, we there are a lot of sellouts. There are a lot of sellouts. It's so sad. Um, but, uh, it was, so the professors who sort of tried to equip you for pre-law at Reed were the political theory professors and they all had these like, you know, they were very successful, obviously academically, they're professors, uh, and of course political theorists are, have very crisp thinking. So for them, the idea of law school was pretty natural. So that was why I did that. Did you go straight to law school from undergrad? I didn't. So this is where it gets a little, things go a little to the side. So um, when I graduated from college, I had just finished my thesis, which was on Thomas Paine. It was on political economy. So lawyer adjacent, legal adjacent. Um, I was pretty burned out. So I, you know, did the standard like three months of trips. I worked for a political campaign, uh, David Bragdon, who ended up working in New York for Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, was Metro Council president, so we got him elected um, in Portland. And I worked on, edited a book on Buddhism by Thich Nhat Hanh. So just lots of hmm. random things. Did some political organizing of lobstermen in Maine. That's true. I did that. Uh, in this the is the of, typical yeah, college to law school path. Yeah, college <laughs> law school path. In the winter. It's cold. <laughs> what kind of political organizing were you doing? They were trying the to put a salmon <clears throat> farm in uh -huh. the middle of uh, Blue Hill Bay. Okay. In uh, which is in Mount Desert Island, and uh, there's a lot of ecological damage that gets done by salmon farms. Sure. So I was up there alone in the very very cold uh, northern Maine winter, uh, trying to get the lobstermen to. How did you How did you end up doing that? How did you end up there? Um, well, obviously, when you edit a book, <laughs> book about on Buddhism, Buddhism, you end up yeah. in Maine. It's, it's, it's true. It's, to... it's a It's a natural step. No, it was. Um, it's actually where my stepmother's family is from is from up there so we just had connections and 
you know, Maine Coast Heritage Trust was fighting it, so we just ended up involved. Yeah. Interesting. But then, then my dad seduced me. He started <laughs> little by little. He's like, I just have this little project for you to do. He's like, and he offered me, you know, like a, a reasonable wage. And all of a sudden, I was working in the telecom room with a broken folded chair and a telephone. And I was like calling timeshare people, trying to like buy out their units. And one thing led to another. And a year later, I was like, you know, doing the sales office of a real estate development and then doing design. And where was this? Was this so down in Florida? Florida? Keys. Yeah. So Key West. Um, and this was right as the boom is happening, right? So 2003 to 2007, eight, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty tough time, 2007, eight, but right up until then it was pretty great. So we built three different hotels, um, uh, during that time. We also tried to do one in Costa Rica. So I could spend a lot of time hiring lawyers in Costa Rica, which is exciting. Um, and I was all the time trying to sort of move my way back into legal world, um, so I'm political. So like uh, Peter Deutsch, who was our congressman, was running for Senate in 2004, so I ended up working in his campaign, uh, but not full-time. Um, so, but all the, but throughout, since you know, everybody knew I always wanted to be a lawyer, I was interested in political stuff, I was working with our in-house counsel, I was working on all our contracts, um, just, to, just to learn, right, I mean, what, right. what skills other than just regular intelligence did I have? Um, but then there was this sort of amazing intervention that, that, that sort of pushed me back onto the, the legal path. So the most prominent lawyer in the Florida Keys was this guy named Jim Hendrick. He'd been like the chairman of the Florida Bar, like this prominent land use lawyer, you know, like a first in his law school class kind of guy, smartest guy in the room. But he had just rubbed one too many people the wrong way. And <clears throat> he had also got involved in this, like, Hatfield and McCoy, like, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil style feud, where these two old Key West families, the Ramoses and uh, the Morgans, had this land dispute. I mean, really, a property line dispute that caused this, like, literally divided the entire town. So, like, the entire professional class in the city was, like, a rift over this one piece of property. And it led to, it led to their lawyers getting involved and hating each other, who were once friends and then became enemies. And then the mayor at the time of Key West actually took a bribe. He solicited a bribe for his property in Ireland. He had a lien on it. And he used this bag man. And the bag man was friends with Jimmy, as was everybody else in this story. And everybody, and then the FBI comes down. <laughs> And the FBI flips everybody except Jimmy. And they flip him on Jimmy. And so he says, I'm innocent. And so, but we're very good personal friends with him. So he said, come on, help my defense team. Come to the trial, sit at the defense table. It's like a three-week trial. So it was this big federal corruption trial. So I got to prep him, you know, got to be with his defense team, like go through, you know, a year's worth of huh. documents, sit through the trial. And, well, he was convicted the punchline. Um, but it doesn't end there. Actually gets pretty weird. So one of the prosecutors... It's not, it's not already weird. <laughs> no, it gets, it gets weird. One of the prosecutors is a very notorious prosecutor. Do you know Brenda Morris? Do you know who she is? You no. know of her. She's uh, one of the two prosecutors who prosecuted Ted Stevens okay. in Alaska, who ultimately uh, 
was uh, sanctioned for not for having Brady material and not turning it over to him. Right. But the coda to that is that that's the reason we have Obamacare because Ted Stevens' conviction got him replaced, and that was the 60th vote that got Obamacare through. Which is a kind of a funny. Didn't Ted Stevens and Shirley really thereafter? Story about the birth Obamacare. of Obamacare. Correct. <laughs> we started so we, in May. I, I have so many. I have so many questions about this story. I want to so, let you finish, and then so, I'm yeah, going to like so, circle back and so spend basically, the next what happened is as I we're not even going to do the regular <laughs> podcast. Today. We're, we're just going to talk about. We're going to do a Jim Hendricks podcast. So while I was watching this trial, I was equally fascinated by both the defense and the prosecution. Brenda Morris was one of the two federal prosecutors and was clearly, like, not above board. But the other guy, his name was Christopher Clark, I think he was just the local Southern District of Florida AUSA who had the case, was great. Um, I thought he was super professional. And I thought the judge was this, his name was Shelby Highsmith, like, out of some kind of, like, 40s, like, Southern gentleman situation outrageous. He was retiring. He was 78, so he didn't care what anybody said. He would cut them off. He would let in evidence that would never come in. He Sounds let like a regular yeah, judge. It was wild. He let in the dead mayor's wife testify to hearsay in the courtroom. And that was like what got him convicted. Wait, so the wife was dead? Or no, the, the, mayor, hus- the, the mayor couldn't testify because right. he was dead. He died of a heart attack. And so he let the what the mayor's, the dead mayor's wife testify to a conversation she had overheard her husband have in the courtroom. And you're just, th- while this is happening, you're just a family friend of the defendant. You're not a lawyer. Just they're sitting just, at the defense table. Just, I took just, notes for three weeks. To, they allowed just allowed let me sit there. The and the prosecutors the kept asking who I was, and they just <laughs> yeah. constantly lied. I would be so And just confused. misled them with who I was. They were just like, oh, he's just a note taker. <laughs> yeah, so I was just in there. It was great. Uh, and I was like, I'm definitely doing this. This is way, way more interesting than what I'm doing right yeah. now. Um, Fortunately, like that's like <laughs> 0.1% of all lawyering. But So I was like, I definitely want to do that job, uh, one of the two sides. I don't know which job it is, but I want to do one of these, one of these jobs. Uh, so, you know, I take the long LSAT and apply. And then I was, in a, I was in a relationship at the time, and I wanted to end up in New York. So it was New York schools or – or bust. So I ended up at Cardozo. Um, and, uh, and I have good feelings about that because I met my wife there and, um, and, uh, and I was, do we have any questions about? So, so <laughs> I, I have I, more questions, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to <laughs> blow by them and get on with, with the story. Um, so you go from, you sort of give up your position at Completely. the family real estate business. Completely give it up. And yes. we're halfway through a development called Parrot Key. And right. I was just like, I, I got it. I got this other thing I have to do. And this is while the financial crisis is happening too. Correct. So has the business kind of <laughs> taken it, a it hit was, too? It was a tough time to leave, it admittedly. Was. So I actually, here's my one bust story. So we were doing this deal called Coral Lagoon. So we had sold out the first two projects that I was involved with, Tranquility Bay and Go Reef. Great. Coral Lagoon were about half sold out. It's not even, it's like the smallest of the three projects. And the market freezes. It's like the first freeze. It's like 2006. Like there's tremors in the force. And all of a sudden, and we always had, de- we'd always taken and demanded like 20% deposits on the banks that we used. And the keys are very conservative. 
And so that's what they de- demanded too. But this wild set of characters comes down from Miami. Um, Vinny Colangelo, which is wild characters in like Lamborghinis and they're like doing these reverse mortgages. You know, they're putting 5% down and like, you know, getting 110% mortgage. I mean, just craziness. Peak of the market. And I was like, you can believe whatever these brokers tell you, but that's craziness. Like, you shouldn't do these deals. I mean, they're not going to make that much money. Um, But they bought them all. And I remember it was all this one Chase broker who did all the deals. And one day, I think we did 13 or 12 deals with them. And it was the last one. There was one deal left. And I called the guy. I talked to him, you know, 100 times. And uh, it was the day after the Lehman had gone down. And the entire group had been fired. They were just the entire arm of Chase had just been fired. So clearly that, that deal did not go through, needless to say. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a wild time. So we were halfway through this deal in Key West. And we actually turned it from uh, uh, a residential development into a hotel. Like halfway through. Like we had to like pivot because there just weren't any buyers. But interestingly enough, the hospitality market didn't dry up at all. It got stronger. So the hospitality market in a lot of ways – uh, ended up being more valuable than the residential market for a couple of reasons. So, and this is kind of a an, an odd fact. I mean, you wouldn't know this about the hospitality world. I, I didn't until I was involved in it. But the way you do the business, you talk about per key, right? Sort of the per key cost of a hotel. So you could end up spending a million dollars a key to buy an expensive hotel, right, per room. But a house in that market could be like seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, and of course it's radically bigger. It has a lot more infrastructure that needs to be right. in, in it. So there's there can be these now since there's no income producing quality to it, or it's much harder to monetize. It, it doesn't work as well. But so what actually happened is right in that time, the hospitality market lapped the residential market. And in a lot of ways, it actually hasn't stopped for for that kind of product. Gotcha. It's an interesting. So it was. We did it exactly at the right at the right moment. Yeah, by necessity, admittedly. And, and then when you got to law school, you sort of wanted to leave all of this world behind, and you very much wanted to go into the criminal defense world. Exactly right, and that's why I picked Cardozo because Cardozo is where the Innocence Project is based. Huh. So um, that's how that, old were you at this point? It's twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. So I went specifically with the Innocence Project in mind, um, and uh, like I. Applied, got in, and then I ended up taking summer classes instead, actually, um, try to shorten law school. Um, but I do have some interesting Innocence Project stories. Um, and uh, and then after my first year, I did a mediation clinic because I was interested in sort of seeing the whole gamut, um, which is an interesting thing to, to do if you've never done mediation um, it's a whole it's a good it's a good skill to have in your regular life. I think it's a good skill for prosecutors and defense attorneys. Yeah. In negotiation. Um, at this point are you thinking prosecutor, defense attorney or as you're going through law school are you making up your mind what which side I you am. Be that's on? R- exactly. So, I start I start in the mediation clinic and uh, it's very interesting Leela Love, she's like a prominent mediation person. But she takes it very seriously. She's definitely looking for you to become a professional mediator at the end, uh, which I realized pretty early I was not going to be. 
and then I and then I started working for my summer job, and I actually got a summer job at the New York State Attorney General's office. With uh, oh yeah, me and Tyler used to work together. I forgot that we did. <laughs> <laughs> we worked yeah, there together. Two two years, three years, something like that. We worked there for about two and a half years together. Two and a half years. Uh, so this is this is like 2010. So I did a I worked AG's office in the money laundering unit for a summer, uh, and that was it. I was totally hooked. Um, hooked on money laundering. Hooked on money laundering, which is <laughs> it's actually exactly what I did for five years. But no, I got hooked on I got hooked on being a prosecutor. So while I was there, I did a case. Uh, the money laundering unit was working on a case. This with is the, a summer job. Summer right? job. Yeah. So I got a summer job because um, I knew I wanted to do a public sector thing. I had worked for uh, Corp Council in New York, and it was interesting. But it you know civil stuff and a lot of courtroom stuff. But it wasn't didn't you know, appealed to me particularly. And um, so I ended up uh, applying to this job at the Attorney General's office and getting it. And while I was there, I did a lot of work with the Southern District um, because they were doing a couple of joint cases. And so most of my time was writing uh, papers for this federal case. um, For I also then got an internship with that AUSA for the spring. And then I did a full-time school uh, clinic where I was not in classes at all my first semester of my third year uh, and I was at the Manhattan DA's office doing a full-time uh, internship so they like you know you get your own cases um, these like narcotics eviction cases you second seat of like a felony trial you go through the training that the EDAs do so you do like the six weeks training with them uh, so it's a it was a great, great experience. Gary Galperin was a professor who's like, who's been at Danny since like 1980 or something. So a very senior uh, ADA at the time. And, but he was there, this was under the previous administration. So he had just, he had just sort of lost his status under Morgenthau and was the last of the people who hadn't been fired. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up getting demoted unjustly, but uh, he, he's still there as I believe in uh, as like a, a so, like an advisor in rackets after you know being <laughs> the chief of the criminal division or something for like fifteen years or huh. something like that. So that's what happens in public service. You never leave. You're just <laughs> slowly, slowly eased out. out you walk on your own. Correct. So I actually tried to actually tried to get him when Kelly needed her job. I actually got I asked him to apply before she she appeared. This is like a one-on-one conversation yeah, we're with me. This just, has no relevance to anybody I have, else. Right? I have no idea who Kelly is. <laughs> I have no idea what anyone is saying right now, but I'm sure the listeners are going to love it. <laughs> Great podcasting. He's also whispering it to me as if yeah. we were in a room. Just leaned in. By ourselves. We're getting some, <laughs> some dirt. Uh, Tyler, I want to just go back to your law school experience a little more. Do you think because you were – older was your was your law school experience significantly different than your undergrad experience were you a different type of student um yes i think so but unfortunately i think it wasn't necessarily to my uh it was i think i learned more maybe mm-hmm. but i don't think it necessarily helped me succeed i think i took it it was so exciting to be back in school i treated it like the liberal arts education that uh i had enjoyed as an undergrad and I didn't take it for the professional environment, at least initially, that it was. I remember 
when my first year, I would read, like in torts, I really like torts, I would read like every case referenced in the case. And I would come in and I would copy them all and I would bring them in in case the professor asked uh. about them. And this went on for like a semester. So you didn't really know how law school worked. Basically. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I was, it was a real mistake. Uh, yeah, I didn't know. You must and have been going home every night and working for like 10 hours a night too. I, maybe. It was, but it was, I, I did it in contracts and in torts, maybe in property. But I mean, there's something to be said for, for learning a lot and having it, a really great learning experience. Maybe not playing the game the right way but right it was it, it really like this is something that i say when i when people you know i used to have a lot of interns at the attorney general's office and i would always say this i was like law school is super interesting actually you know despite what people sometimes say totally. you, you always did have a lot of interns how do you manage to pull that off i don't know they i i got somehow got assigned to be the intern coordinator so i would hire all the interns which meant that i would personally have a lot of interns in addition <laughs> i would keep them um <laughs> so if if i thought they were especially good I think, and this is something that I've said before, if you if you don't play the game right in a professional environment, you're doing yourself a tremendous disservice. And so my advice to anyone going to law school is to take it for what it is. Don't take it for what you think it is or what you want it to be. It's a way to get jobs. It's a way to get it's a way to get access to working attorneys, to professors who so just, will vouch just for you. Just direct this to Low over there, who's <laughs> thinking about going to law school in a year. And uh, and uh, I really think that if you are seduced by the Socratic method of what's happening there, uh, and you forget that at the end of the day, there's going to be a multiple choice test that's going to tell a professor, uh, or their prof at least the professor's uh, student assistant, how well you did in that class, you've uh, you've misjudged you've misjudged the environment. So I, I, I misjudged the environment <laughs> initially. Uh, I, I, I wised up fast. Um, so, but what I really loved was uh, interning for SDNY, but you can't do that right out of law school. So uh, the, the next best thing was to go straight into the attorney general's office. So there was an opportunity to get hired uh, for this like one position straight out of law school. Uh, in the money laundering unit where I had been, and and I applied and I got it. Um, so, but what I ended up getting to do was continuing to work with SDNY on almost all of my cases. Cool. So the majority of my first two or three years were like all these cross-designated SDNY cases where sort of the AG's office had basically like run out of jurisdiction. And, mm -hmm. you know, we could have indicted the cases in three or four counties, but it made more sense to just indict it all together as one federal case where, frankly, in a lot of cases, they had better better statutes. Do you have any good Lee Bergstein stories from the time oh, that you were there? You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> uh, actually, we didn't um, we didn't do any cases together because we were in different parts of the same bureau. What right. was Lee's reputation in the office <laughs> besides having a horrible sense of humor? I don't think he has an answer for I, that. I think he does. I'm, I'm, I'm willing actually, to. I'm willing to sit around and wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm actually. I sort of think that we we both had roughly similar reputations. I, I don't know if that's. I think that's actually fair. I think we were like both for being the on the younger side. We're like, I don't know, like respected younger people in the office. There definitely were other you know, younger attorneys who who didn't seem to get the same 
the as as good or interesting cases. So I think Lee was respected by the superiors, which I, I know is not the answer you were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you for a fact I was not respected <laughs> by the superiors at the AG's office. But I was going to ask you, because I don't think I ever asked you this when, when we were working together, but so you go from law school right to the AG's office. For people who are listening and, and don't know, the attorney general's office is mostly staffed by, I'd say, a, a pretty solid mix of former city prosecutors, right? Right. And um, and some law firm folks, some some individuals coming from small, medium, big-sized law firms. So most people there are, are, are experienced lawyers, though, or have work experience. They might not be experienced lawyers, but they have work experience. Was there any blowback coming into the office not having been a practicing attorney at all? Did you ever feel like people treated you differently or, or the interaction was different because you hadn't practiced before coming there? I think I covered for it by being 30 or 31 when I got in. So it looked like I was a senior. <laughs> <laughs> looked like I had those four or five years of experience at a DA's office. Um, so I, I think I sort of conned people by them not knowing. Um, Did and you feel like you had to catch up? Just absolutely. Well, level? there's no training program, right? So you have to you have to do your own do your work on your own time. Right. Uh, in addition to the office, to keep up. So which is which is generally in my advice to everybody uh, who's thinking about going to law school or thinking about how to get jobs afterwards. Which is if you intern somewhere or when you get your first job, do as much as you can in your own time. Like you will reap the benefits by looking more prepared, by coming in on your own time uh, and uh, sort of out hustling everyone because it's sort of the one place where, you know, everyone will be smart. Everyone will be qualified at those places. You're not going to, you're not going to be the only one. I'm sorry to say, but you may be the only one willing to work an extra night to work an extra three nights. So I would, that's my casual advice to, Everyone looking for jobs. That's great advice. My favorite interview question when I used to do interviews at the DA's office, and I don't think I ever did interviews at the AG's office, but my favorite question was um, for people to ask me was what can I do um, to get myself prepared for this job? What can I do between today and the time that I start working at your office to get prepared? And I asked the AG's office that question when I interviewed, and they said, learn about the Martin Act if you want to be in criminal enforcement and financial crimes one day, which I did. And I remember um, I got the offer, and that morning I had a flight to Aruba, and I literally read about the Martin Act the entire flight to Aruba. And I think I think it is important. You know, no one's going to tell you at any at any government agency, any firm, they're not going to tell you what to do, how to how to do your job, how to understand the law. So do that on your own, and and give yourself an advantage over other people in your position. Absolutely. I mean, this is basically how I, how I got the time that I got with my, my mentor at the SDNY, who's still a very close friend and actually called me the other day. I think he has a client who's maybe being indicted by the AG's office. Um, and he, I just did all the work for him, whatever he assigned me at home. And so I could spend all the time when I was in the office watching him interview witnesses in courtrooms, um, you know, dealing with agents. Um, and that was fascinating and something that all the people in the library weren't getting. And, you know, I think if you don't have that experience, it's hard to know how to manage, uh, an investigation. And that's sort of the, the sort of the, the key skill that you have 
that you're being tested on when you're at the attorney general's office, right? Or when you're at, when you're sort of at doing paper cases at a DA's office or at the AG's office or a federal office, what you're doing is you're managing investigations, right? You're, you're figuring out, you know, what the lead is, how to work with agents. There's often multiple different agencies and you're like coordinating with them, dealing with court chambers. And it's an, it's an, it was an incredible advantage, I think, to have already seen someone do that uh, at a high level. So I would strongly advise people in whatever they want to do to take advantage of the, the one-on-one time that you can actually get in an internship and the access that you can get and the, someone to really stand up for you and say that you're qualified. Uh, because I know that when I went to hire people at the AG's office and for some reason they let me hire people too. Yeah, they put me, they put me in charge of uh, like interviewing like the first round, like Often I, I interviewed a number of people who I'd hired as interns, and that's it was a huge advantage to them that they knew me. And I could speak for them. I could write them letters. Hmm. How long were you there? Uh, f- about about five years, like f- a little less, I think. Just a little okay. less. As soon as Tyler left, I left. Yeah, I couldn't was, stay there was, any longer. It was done. And what prompted the decision the decision to leave? So I think there's two reasons. One was I had kind of done what I had come to do, which is I had led, you know, three or four different investigations from, from you know, and sort of originating the case up through the investigation, up through indictment, and then either plea or trial. Um, I had done one long criminal trial, which I had wanted to do, which was a great experience. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's obviously the, the great thing that all us lawyers want to do, but it's a tr- truly test you in ways that you know, I was not prepared for even even right before it. Um, and and that's, that's one reason. So it sort of felt like I had done what I wanted to do. Uh, and so it was either time to move into the private sector or move in, you know, to a federal prosecuting job. Uh, but the other reason is that my brother, who's younger than me, had started working with my dad, and we had this opportunity to um, – he said, like, it's time, basically, it's time to get bring the band back together, right? Like, we need you to come here, help us finish these two hotels, and then help start this private equity company at the same time. So that's the second one paid a lot better than the other one. <laughs> did, you so feel, did, did you feel any, like, guilt about sort of giving up the, the practice of, like, being a trial attorney? I, I did. I do, actually. Um, even, even now... Uh, as satisfied as I am with my work, it's challenging in a really different way. And, um, you know, you're, you sort of stand alone when you write something and a judge reviews it or you stand in court and you make your arguments. Um, there's so many layers of review in a, when you're building something, when you're buying a property, there's lenders and investors and partners and, you know, landscape architects and architects and, you know, engineers and designers, interior designers. I mean, it's like an endless array of people there to help you, hydrologists, archaeologists, like it's sort of an endless array. And so you're just the animating vision of development, uh, which is different. You know, there's such such an exciting part of the actual lawyering. So every you know, I still do probably 20 to 30 percent of what I do is writing letters, reviewing contracts, dealing with our attorneys. That's, you know, 
our in-house counsel, outside counsel, people on special projects. Um, but every once in a while, I get to do some like real lawyering, mm-hmm. and that's always really fun. It's like shut the door, and you actually have to like it's a whole different kind of thinking because it slows down, and you actually have to not answer the phone, not look at your email, not respond to the president of the hospitality group, not respond to whatever, and you have to actually do the deep thinking and actually make sure that you haven't forgotten something because, you know, as you know, there's nobody to double, there's no backstop. You're the only one. And so there's a, there's just a different experience in being a lawyer. So even though, I mean, I'm waxing a little poetic here about it, but there's, there is something different about being a practicing lawyer. You're, you're being called, uh, you're being called to a different level of scrutiny than I think you are in almost any other job. When you're in the middle of some of the deals that you're doing, do you get the sense that, that you're being dealt with a different way because you're, I'll call them your adversary in the deal, knows that you're a lawyer, knows your background? Do you think it has an advantage in that way? I think it definitely gives me an advantage. I think, I don't think that our adversaries perceive it in any way uh, as a, they're not threatened and they don't perceive it as an advantage to us. And the truth is I don't, I don't know that it is an advantage in the sense of just like the negotiations. Uh, But I do think there is a rigor of thinking that you learn in law school um, that happens that first year somewhere um, that is very helpful and, all the non-lawyers on a deal can easily miss something that a lawyer will pick up. And I think even now I notice that with frequency, that, that all the non-lawyers, until you get, until we bring in, you know, our, you know, fancy law firm, they won't pick something up. And I'm the only other one who's going to pick up that little sub issue because somewhere back in your mind, when you prepared for the bar exam or you took property, you know that that issue is an issue that needs to be dealt with and litigated. And so you make sure to, consider it. Um, so I, I think the answer is yes, but in a, like a little bit of a different way. Right. Are you, do you find that the law school experience, like if you could go back and sort of prepare yourself for the job that you have today, would you have done things any differently? Would you have considered going to business school or considered, you know, spending more time at a New York firm that does whatever? Like I, I, do you feel like law school or being a lawyer sort of gave you the training necessary to be successful in the field you're in today? So the thing that I miss actually is all these people went, were at Goldman together, right? That's the, that's the party, part of the party you're not in. It's not the attorneys because Mm -hmm. they all have attorneys, right? And they've all been dealing with attorneys since they were 23. So they're very comfortable with attorneys and how attorneys think and how attorneys act and what they charge. So I don't actually find, I'm not sure that going back and spending more time in mergers and acquisitions would have helped because the deals and the fields you're in are so specific and the contracts that you deal with are so like industry specific, right? Is it a union hotel? Is it not? The contracts are completely different. You know, is it a, you know, the, the, the purchase and sale agreements are different, let alone the property management contracts are completely different. You know, is it, if it's in, if it's a New York, LA or DC hotel, it makes a difference if it's a, those are union hotels, but if it's a union hotel in Seattle, it's completely different. So it's like, they're all these just utterly different regional 
contracts and sort of set of norms. So I'm not sure that being more specific would have actually helped. But I think possibly being in finance earlier might have helped. So um, we do a little bit of a, a, a speed round to close out okay. the show. Um, let's ask you some questions, and you can give us the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, so what's the one thing that a typical hotel goer know, doesn't know about hotels um, that you can provide a little color to? What should we know that we don't know? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, I guess I would say the rates are incredibly flexible. Like you, (laughs) virtually unless you're dealing with one of the top, top, top luxury brands, like people who won't drop their rates below certain amounts, Belmont, Four Seasons maybe, like just there are people and what they do is they just optimize the rates for hotel rooms. It's a whole job and it's a big part of the industry and – just think about it, right? Like the hotel has a cost every time they rent the room, right? It costs $40 to clean it and sheets and maid service or whatever. So what the hotel cares about is making money from the room. So what they really want to do is run the room at 97, 98% occupancy year round at whatever rate they can above what it's going to cost them mm-hmm. for the room. So there's an incredibly flexible price for hotel rooms and it's and it is and it's manipulated incredibly carefully because you think like the way you I'm sure people have had this experience where you see flights adjust constantly that's actually drafting off of the work that people do for hospitality I thought you were going to say like don't sleep on the sheets I didn't realize well don't do that that kind of (laughs) definitely don't do that that kind of insight yeah for sure well if you want that that one it's the the top blanket and any of those throw pillows, do not touch them. <laughs> they are never, never cleaned. Don't touch them. Much worse than you think. That was my main speedrun <laughs> question. But I, I have another question, which is this. It sounds like your legal career, in, in some ways, is kind of bookended by that first trial that you experienced and that second trial that you experienced. So um, can you compare the two while you were trying that second case did you think back to that initial experience when you were the quote unquote no taker and, and now you're in charge and, and the difference, how did it feel? What was going through your mind when you were thinking about those two different experiences? Right. Well, I think, um, I think the thing that it, it does being on both the prosecution and the defense. And I, and I think you'll, you can speak to this experience too, is it's really important to, remain sort of sympathetic to the defendant because, you know, you're in that whole courtroom and everybody is just looking at this one person, which is the reason everyone's there. Right. And it's, it's humbling to be the instrument of the state, uh, sort of doing, causing this tremendous hardship to this person, uh, whether they did it or not. And I can tell you that trial that I did, Tyrone Lee did it. Um, I convicted him in three different counties. I mean, he definitely did it. <laughs> um, but it, I think the the difference was, you know, sitting with the defendant versus being the one, you know, saying jacques to the defendant, right? right? And your role as 
sort of the decency that you have to have, the sort of impartiality you have to have as the prosecutor um, dealing with the defendant. Like you have to, you have to feel, I think, that whatever the outcome is is okay for you. That your job is just to dispense the best case that the people can marshal, but you can't be happy when they're. You shouldn't feel happy when they're convicted. It's like, you know, it's like you're you're righting a wrong, but this individual is going to suffer. And, you know, I watched this other, this guy, Jim Hendricks. You know, I, I literally saw, I was there when we went to the, went back to his office and then they got the call like two hours later that the jury verdict was in. And I, it felt like walking behind him, holding his wife's hand back into the courtroom. It felt like someone was walking to, you know, to an execution because there was no way they had come back in two hours and, and it was innocent. And, you know, he was convicted on all counts. They put him in handcuffs, took him away. And like, I walked out with his wife. So it's like, it's good to remember. And I think it was nice to have seen at least before I was a prosecutor, sort of the human side of the defense. Um, and so this is the sort of the coda to the story before. So Jimmy gets convicted of, you know, corruption and bribery and all these things. And he was facing, I think, the sentencing guidelines were 43 months. Um, so Shelby Highsmith, 78-year-old, retiring federal judge, um, had Jimmy in, in for, I think, 60 days waiting for sentencing and then gave him six months of house arrest. The federal prosecutors went, as you might imagine, apoplectic, appealed to the 12th Circuit, got it reversed, the sentence reversed, to which Shelby Highsmith then imposed a sentence of 12 months house arrest, <laughs> giving the proverbial middle finger as he walked out the door to go home. Uh, and Jimmy served his time and did some phenomenal amount of public service, like 5,000 hours of whatever, yeah. like free legal advice, and got his license suspended for five years and high practices again, I think. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to end it, I think. <laughs> All right, Tyler. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is well, a great thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. <laughs>